The Everything Sequel Podcast is brought to you by Tuity Fitness and Brew Bar. The Everything Sequel Podcast contains explicit language, and I will not go to my room. Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Harry Potter edition. My name is Michael Schantz, happily here from the How Dare You Awards. With me, of course, a member of the loyal opposition, Tom Stewart from Lonesome Whistle Productions. Hit me, Tom. Yeah, take it away, honey. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Little old lady at 12 (laughs) o'clock. That line is said by a Caribbean shrunken head head furry dice. (laughs) And that's only the beginning of what's good about this film. Right. So... Ladies and gentlemen, of course, Tom and I are talking today about the 2004 film Prisoner of Azkaban, directed by the Tom-described genius of our times, genius director of our times, Alfonso Cuaron. Mm -hmm. We both think this is the best movie in the series. Yeah, and not only that... And I just don't think it can be argued, right? It would be be very... It would be very hard to argue that it's not the best movie in the series you know and i'm gonna go as far as saying i think this is one of the best movies we've done on this podcast mm-hmm. um i i mean first of all you know i'm sure that is high praise from a man who does not like harry potter right right yeah um and i think it's interesting because obviously you're enjoying my suffering like that's <laughs> that's well, not in question you can't i think probably you can't i think probably you know um you can't blame me for that <laughs> i think probably no i'm gonna punish you for that later <laughs> when, yeah, when i pick are. something that I, when i find out what really needles you in the world of sequels you are gonna get it yeah you're gonna like get you, it with you both barrels my friend <laughs> you've mentioned before that i'm a little too amiable Towards a You're shitty so movie. fucking agreeable, so. and you like mostly like the same shit I do. So it's like right. there's an impasse here. I think I think I'm getting there. I think I'm getting a, a hint of something uh, that I <laughs> that I might use to punish you. Anyway, um, and you know I think it makes for good podcasting. You know the the adversarial element, but yes, of I am so grateful that I can be entirely positive about this movie. And that is not me. That is no hyperbole there. I uh-huh. was looking through my notes, and in terms of gripes I have with this movie, one, add a push, maybe two, of the right. ho- of this fucking long movie, <laughs> of this nearly three-hour movie, um, and I just couldn't believe it. And I thought, yeah, this may be one of the best films we've done on this uh, podcast. A lot of that yeah. is about the director, and you know, obviously, I have some bias towards his sure. directorial vision but i wasn't willing to just assume that he's that he could you know come up with the goods in this yeah. especially in this you know studio context this very i mean well and that's the thing that i find the most interesting about this movie i think it's a really good object lesson as to how a very talented person can bring their stamp to what essentially feels more like a machine-driven yeah. process for 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 a movie. Can you imagine the kind of oversight the, yeah, the director right. has on a movie like this? And for him Exactly. And for him to still emerge not only unscathed but actually producing shining, yeah. work that is that is exemplary even compared to his own um, back catalog. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he's and well, you know what he's done since, what he did before. Uh, he does. I mean, he th- he has the advantage of 
he has a real knack for sci-fi and fantasy. Like some of my favorite uh, of his movies, like Gravity and uh, Children of Men, are um, you know uh, space space uh, stories and dystopian stories. So I certainly knew that he could he could deal with this kind of material, but um, but sure, you know, there's just I. I I was I I wasn't willing to give it to him just because you know just because he did it and just because of how much I liked him I genuinely thought what he did was the best and most interesting version of this formula. Absolutely, and it is, and I agree completely. Yeah. At this point in the in the um, Harry Potter movies, it's a very rigid formula. It's like this is almost a scene by scene reenactment of Chamber of Secrets if you just look at it on paper. And yet, mm-hmm. that made it easier for me to see where, you know... He went right. Yeah, like where his version of, of every scene is better than everyone else's. Because right. you can actually look at it, you can go, you know, his um, his getting to the school His conception is, of the world. Yeah. Like right his from conception the, of the world is really amazing. Right from the outset with, you know, what he does with the Uncle Vernon stuff versus what you know they do in other movies it's very clear to me this guy's working on a different level (laughs) sure uh like instantly from from minute one i could just everything seemed like immediately the camera work the lighting the acting it had all become looser more natural more flowing there was a kind of yeah quasi-documentary underpinning to the way he was making this movie that, mm-hmm. like, instead of downgrading the, the 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 fantasy and the horror, actually intensified it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing that's interesting to me is you look at the first two movies and the first two movies feel like, and this, I think, seems like the Chris Columbus way, but they feel like they're made through the goggles of one word, magic. <laughs> well, yeah, things, you thing, know, small. And and this looks like a real world that's lived in. But yeah, and, and yet what? In a way that's just far more interesting. But I think also what makes this better than what David Yates end up doing, because that's kind of his shtick too, mm-hmm. for me, is that is that it it plays up the, the kind of European gothic elements yeah. of the story in a way that well you even have sort of music from the scottish play or yeah. music based you know that kind of those touches that set this movie apart but there's a lot of the influence of german expressionism of the like the 1920s is very apparent in this movie and that's such an interesting like spin on this this material and takes it to a place um where definitely, you know, the the roots of this kind of fantasy, uh, uh, like wizards and magic, come from that kind of folk mm-hmm. horror. But the way that he explores, the, the way that Quran explores that here is just uh, brilliant. And yet, uh, he's also able to kind of respin things we've already seen, like, like obviously, the British pop culture references in the Harry Potter movies are just you know, they they're, they're everywhere but here <laughs> but this was like a genuinely like it, it it was a kind of post 1970s british kind of indie um approach well for for the listeners what are those examples well i mean he, the <laughs> david thewlis who's a kind of an actor Known for great. his independent, just fucking great. His, indep- his independent cinema in the eighties and nineties. Mike Lee's Naked, one of the best performances in 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 cinema, and he's at the forefront of it. Um, mm-hmm. Ian Brown, the <laughs> lead singer of the Stone Roses, is seen in a in the Wizard Inn reading Stephen Hawking. Yeah, I saw. I love the sort of reference to the brief history of time. Also, you know the the uh, the the shrunken head that we've already talked about, who's he's called Drehead, um, mm-hmm. Drehead, uh, is voiced by Lenny Henry, who's an alternative comedian from the nineteen eighties in Britain. Uh, Dawn- and they've got a whole subset thing with that head. Like, if you have the DVDs and the extras, 
like the head is conducting interviews and shit like that. That's, nice. You know, nice. really fun. And, and Dawn French, who's the lady who appears in the, the painting, was, was uh, not only Lenny, Lenny Henry's female equivalent in the 1980s comedy scene, they were also married for a long period of time. So okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, That's there's interesting. There's this, you know, there's this. Le- sub- it's a good thing you're here. It's this sub layer of of <laughs> things that really speak to. Uh, whereas the last movie, you know, it was it was it was Britain seen through a Hollywood lens. This is British Britain seen through a like an ins an insider track, but also you know like a pan European. Someone is able to reach out to to uh, you know. Uh, European gothic styles to make this movie, and it felt it felt almost kind of cut off from Hollywood in a wonderful way. I don't know what Alfonso Cuarón did to make you're. That's interesting. You're you're right. I I don't think I considered that until you said it, but I think you're absolutely right. I don't know what he did to tame John Williams and make him not sound like <laughs> you know he's the way John Williams. That, well, right. that kind of. Tr- like I've never heard John Williams soundtracks that don't have that kind of American triumphalist backing mm-hmm. to them, and like he's got, you know, I don't know how he did it, but he's got John Williams doing jazz. And, well, it's funny you say and that actual because classical music. One of my, yeah, <laughs> it's funny you say that because I remember responding so positively, mostly because it was so different to another movie, not a sequel, Catch Me If You Can. Mm. which John Williams was also nominated for. But in the same way, it felt jazz. It felt more like jazz. Yeah. And if I don't know if you remember the music, but yeah, it's I do. just yeah, it's one fucking of the great. I, the one of the few things I do remember about that movie, which I do not yeah. enjoy. Um, all right. Well, so like all these movies, you know, a budget of $130 million makes 249 almost two. Point nine, so two hundred fifty million in the USA. Worldwide, seven hundred ninety-six point one million. These movies are juggernauts. Uh, this time, the crux of this story is: it's one of the few stories where uh, Harry himself isn't the focus in the sense of. Everybody's looking at him because he has a scar. Mm-hmm. Everybody's looking at him because they think he's the heir of Slytherin. You know, we have an outsider who's escaped. And the crux of this story is that Sirius Black has escaped from Azkaban and has an idea Has an idea for a, for a satellite radio company. <laughs> Carry on. Oh, that's great. Well, so... I like this is my favorite movie and this is my favorite book in the series too. Interesting. I I did want and to I, hear from you on that. Yeah, I Cuz not even Alfonso Cuarón makes me want to read this book. <laughs> Such a dick. <laughs> it's so good. Just so good. You're going to have to read it to your child at some point, right? That that might I'm going to get the set for you as a gift and force you to. Hey, if I can deny the existence of soda to my child, I can deny the existence of Harry Potter, okay? <laughs> he doesn't know what he doesn't know what Coke or Sprite or any of those things are. Yeah, that's great. I can censor his I can censor his appreciation for for British pop culture too. I have another friend, shout out to Scott, who who was able to successfully convince his kids until they were nine, I you know, eight, nine or ten that uh, dried fruit was candy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've got we've got some similar like just like li- you can do that with kids. It's sort of if you if you frame it linguistically in the right way, you can make something which is actually a health food seem like something very exciting and da- yeah. and risky and dangerous. So they don't, you know, um, they're not constantly <laughs> craving uh, fructose, high fructose Shit. corn syrup laden products. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, as an outsider new to the, this entire series. Does the story itself stack up for you, or is it just Alfonso's direction that you're you're connected to mostly? I think I probably yeah I enjoyed the st- I enjoyed the story. You mentioned something which is which I I really like about it, and not for the reasons you'd think. Um, I'd want Harry to be more in the background of this story, but this is I mean this is his kind of Luke Yoda 
um, moment, isn't it? This is the like where we dig into how, like this is the, this to me is like the last time we see Harry as a as a kind of pure trauma victim mm-hmm. before he goes into full anti-hero mode. He starts to get there at the end of this movie for sure, but for the majority of the movie, he's basically it's him. Uh, uh, Lupin ask, acting as his his like uh, quasi psychiatrist, yeah, trying to, surrogate father, trying to unearth these of. memories that you know have given him this post traumatic stress disorder, and it's a it's I mean uh, you know yes it's ha- it's handled by someone who knows how to handle it and that makes a huge difference, but that is the most interesting incarnation of of Harry for me to sort of. Like, let's see what, like, um, let's look at your past. Let's see what it is that makes you uh, suffer in the present day. Well, not just that. It also offers the opportunity for him to, his arc, I think, is more clearly defined in this movie than the others. And it comes out, you know, and it comes out drip by drip. There's no big sort of exposition dumps, um, which which is exactly the way to... To handle, handle it. it, so um, I kind of quite enjoyed it. I su- I'm like getting into like one half of my first of two gripes about this movie. <laughs> up, Go ahead. Up to a point, I was a little, a little disappointed in uh, that that Gary Oldman turned out to be a hero rather than a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, I I I feel weird saying that because I really like the fact that they have cast someone known for playing absolute maniacs who yeah, right. spends the majority of the movie screaming into the lens of the camera to the point where <laughs> right. you just cannot accept that he is not a crazy person, and then he right. turns out to be the most lucid character in the movie and the most heroic. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So I love that, and that's a brilliant piece of casting. Uh, and it's also, you know, Gary Oldman's career from from here on out. From this point forward, yeah, is right. Is all these charismatic leading men. Before that, it was just all... He's all crazy person. All crazy person. I mean, we have already mentioned Mike Lee, but there's a, there's a Mike Lee movie from the early 80s called um, Meantime, and his role involves him thrashing about inside... Uh, like a like a disused chimney from a, an industrial <laughs> site with a stick like a fucking monkey and that is like <laughs> that's how I, that's like early Gary Oldman that's how I think of him um but I, I that while it was happening I was sort of like oh, like I'm, it's a shame that that we don't get some of that Oldman goodness but that's an old way of looking at Gary Oldman and this movie yeah. obviously helped him transition into like one of Hollywood's most um, uh, accessible leading men. Sort of reliable, charming. Yeah, exactly. So I like that. I mean, you know, a, a, a touch disappointed about where that went. In terms of pacing, I think the last act of the movie lags a little bit. I don't think there's enough m- momentum to sustain such a long movie. And that's it. Do you think that's because... <laughs> do you think your reaction to that is partly because... You have an aversion to showing, uh, you know, scenes from earlier movies, and in this scene, in this movie, it shows an entire section of the movie over again. No, actually, okay, that was some one of my favorite parts of the movie. Uh, okay, precisely good. because it. <laughs> I was wondering how you'd feel about the, that. You're talking about the time turner, right? Yeah, right. Um, initially, that was exactly my thought. Like. It's like okay, so this you know this is what Back to the Future Two does, the, like the mm-hmm. second half of Back to the Future Two, we go back to events from the previous movie. This is events from like twenty minutes ago, um, but what is what what's really well done about that, and where I think this corrects the problem of doing that in Back to the Future Part Two is that they know that the stuff they're showing is incomplete. Right. And that they're going to go back yeah. to it and fill in the gaps. Yeah. That is clearly not what happened with Back to the Future Part 2. Like, they don't know that they're going backstage during the 
enchantment under the sea dance right. yeah, to see sure. a sandbag fall on someone's head. Like, that's not their... <laughs> when they're making that... You really not... are against that sandbag, I'll yeah. tell you. There's no... Because that's a, that's a complete picture, but here it's not a complete... Deliberately not a complete picture. And so... Right. I love I loved that. I mean, I thought it was nice. a big gamble to introduce time travel that late on in the movie. <laughs> That's <laughs> sure. never a good sign. But uh, it worked out really well. And of course, it's... Well, and there's pieces of it, you know, from the beginning of the movie. There's questions you have about Hermione, how, yeah. her school schedule, what's going on. So there's connection to it. And, and, you you know, it resolves and continues the story in lots of great ways. But... Look, we're just getting started. Mm -hmm. Let's take a a little break, and then we'll come back, and we'll continue talking about The Prisoner of Azkaban, our favorite movie in the series. Right after this. Does the coronavirus have you feeling oogie? Have you been sitting on your couch for weeks? Nay, have you been sitting on there for months? Well, it's time for you to get back in shape. Check out 2 a T Fitness. You can find them on Instagram. You can find them on Facebook. 2 a T Fitness was started by Tina Bernard. She is ready and raring to go to help you get back into the shape you want to get into. They've got all kinds of classes. They've got outdoor in-person classes. They've got online classes if that's what you prefer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get back in shape. You're going to find a variety of exercises. You're going to have strength training, cardio, weightlifting, even fun five-minute burnouts that will push you to your limits. So get off the couch, get into shape. Go ahead and check out Tua T Fitness. Tina Bernard has got you for all your needs. I know her personally. She's fantastic. You're not going to meet a better person to help you become the new you. Check it out. And we're back. Tom and I are, of course, here discussing the 2004 film Prisoner of Azkaban. Let me ask you this, Tom. You -hmm. were saying in our previous episodes that the children are all terrible and can't act and you fucking hate them and <laughs> nothing about them are good. Are I wish to... you were editorializing, but you're not. <laughs> so, but I find that in this movie, there's a real jump. There's a like a clear jump in their age uh, because they waited for one, like, like this movie took a year and a half to come out instead of mm. just like the next year. Right. And so they're a little bit older. They're a little bit less awkward. And I think they all grow as actors myself. So did you see any of that or no? I I def- I saw a jump in this movie. I felt like the, the next movie, uh, their acting was actually worse than it was when they were little itty bitty kitties. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it's an artificial jump that is to do with the director and the way he's handling them and what he's surrounding them with. But for sh- for sure for this movie, um, their performances have has come on leaps and bounds. Yeah, do you? I know... wish they were able. To, I wish they were able to to maintain it, and and you think that they would be able to, but I don't think they do. At least for the next one. All right, we can argue about that later. Yeah, yeah, but um, I, I mean, he just, and you know, it's not just the acting. I think Karan kind of tones everything down. Yeah, streamlines everything, makes everything more minimal and nuanced. Um, yeah, I'll agree with that for sure. And I think the acting kind of comes under that. So I think it's like a, it's like an overall project that the act that the performances just kind of fall into, uh, making them play everything straight helps enormously mm-hmm. um so yeah and, and it just makes it makes the the fantastical shit that happens in these movies just that bit more magical right yeah. because everything else is so bare and sparse um it kind of feels it's yeah. It just it it, it whatever whatever you get. That well, it, it lacks it, what I was saying earlier. It lacks this movie lacks that the the magic goggles that were forced <laughs> to look through in the first two films, <laughs> and that's what El, you know that's what Alfonso 
Quran brings to this movie is a world in which people actually live in. Yeah, it and, feels very human. Everything. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, I, I noted at one point that once we get into Hogwarts, I'm like, these are the same dynamics and the same conflicts that we've already seen, but they just feel a little bit more human. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is weird because they're not humans, but as I, as, <laughs> as I didn't know for a large chunk of the first sequel that I watched. Um, <laughs> uh, the, well, some of them are mixed, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, but um, So that that just... everything Everything in the frame being less busy, which was something that Columbus was very guilty of. Yeah, for sure. It it makes every it makes everything else kind of stand out and punch in a way that, uh, in a way that it didn't have before. I mean that's crazy to say that like you know I said the the uncle Ver, the uncle Vernon scene is far more grittily realistic than the one in Chamber of Secrets. This scene does involve a woman like blowing up like a Kananga yeah. balloon from Live and Let Die, and yeah, then, like, like <laughs> of course, and then and then floating out of the patio doors. Well, but and that's it's... one of my favorite moments. Like you know, he's got Farris, he's, he's right. got such great little touches. Like when yeah. Harry is storming out of the house with his trunk, uh, you know, in a huff and completely incensed and angry, and then off in the distance you hear. Whoo! And this ballooned <laughs> yes. ant is floating away. I mean, it's just fucking great. I think it's a combination to me of like elevating those um, absurd comic moments to a really uh, to a level like to a really assured handling of that, mm-hmm. and bringing everything else down that yeah. pitches this movie perfectly. I mean. Well, but there are oh. such cinematic moments too. When you're first introduced to the Dementors, this this movie, I mean, so just fucking great looking. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to me that this movie comes so early in the series, because you know they're really he's really pushing the idea of like this is grown up horror now. Mm-hmm. This is not horror for kids. I mean, we have a few kind of little get out clauses that you know like we had in the last movie with the children aren't really dead you know here yeah. we have the we do have the cute animal isn't really dead <laughs> right. um but overall i mean things like the biting book and uh, the face sucking these belong right. in like pat these belong in like pan's labyrinth or raiders of the lost ark yeah know, i feel not. the same way I, even you know even i mean this is jumping ahead in the story, but of course, we've alluded to the time jump. Yes. We're going back in time, and when when Professor Lupin turns into the werewolf. Oh yeah, that is the best example of that. And there's that moment where he turns towards the kids, where I, you know, and then there's a moment where where the time traveling Harry and Hermione are in the woods. So first of all, when you see it the first time, and he turns towards the kids, I think to myself, oh fuck (laughs) like Mm -hmm. like there's real danger in that and then of course you know Sirius as the dog attacks him and then the the wolf runs down the hill but now he's like you find out later he's running straight towards Harry and Hermione so you have a second moment of oh fuck like get out of the way you know so there are those genuine I don't terrifying. Maybe that's yeah. too strong a word, but uh, you know. No, no, they are. They, they, I mean, as, when I when well, I, I mean, saw... in the sense you know that Harry Potter's not going to die, but but you actually you have a visceral sense of the danger they're in. Yeah, this is before that you find out that Harry can die and come back to life. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> it being no problem to him. Um... <laughs> way before, way before, way before. Uh, that that whole sequence, I mean, it it's on a par with American Werewolf in London. That yeah, transformation, right. and they're really channeling that kind of Rick Baker style of, of you know, let's let's have a real bodily, a visceral bodily bodily transformation. Well, and so let me let's ask you about that. What so it you... would take yeah. to turn a man into a wolf, which, yeah, again, like you don't. 
in a kids movie you don't really need to do that so the fact that they do is just is just doubly impressive yeah and do you find it as visceral because it's animated as opposed to the practical effects of American Werewolf in London? I, I think, well, I think the illusion... I think it falls how... a little short of that, but I yeah, think it's well, as exactly. good I mean, as it can be considering it's CGI, right? Yeah, I think I think the, the allusion to it is what made me, was what kind of impressed me and the kind, the allusions to the kind of horror this wants to be which in other areas of the movie it absolutely achieves. I, I think of that early scene where um, Harry's out on the doorstep of uh, Uncle Vernon's house or that street. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time, you know, like... He uh, sees the grim. Yeah, it yeah. comes al- comes along. And it's just like, I have this sense of what's happening here. It's like all there is is wind and darkness right but it's really scary like it's yeah. really genuinely chilling and I'm, I'm thinking what would chris columbus have filled this frame with <laughs> <laughs> right whereas alfonso Caron's goes like we'll have the wind we'll have the darkness and then not really know what's happening that'll be enough and yeah, he, right. he's absolutely right yeah. and then the bus comes and well which is also you know an allusion to cat people you know the what was his name the <laughs> You know the guy he had a Schrader's cat people. You mean? No, no, the original. So the oh, what's his name? Um, oh, so you mean like the first cat people? I have to look it up. Yeah, I, I I don't have it on the tip know, of my tongue. You know tongue. what I mean, though. The yeah, the something buzz. Sorry, horror fans, <laughs> but there was like a convention named after a particular director used from Cat People that he would take this moment of like extreme where you thought something really scary was going to happen and the famous example is like a buzz just arrives okay. out of nowhere and cuts yeah. the tension. And they do exactly the and same thing. And they do the I same didn't realize thing, right. That, but I think that probably is a reference with the 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 night buzz spelt K-N-I-G-H-T. I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much word. I don't know if, if it's like they're just... If, if it just... Uh, reads better in the hands of a good director whether this stuff is in the the book whether this stuff was in the script more than it has been in other movies right but just yeah. the way that the wordplay kind of pops out in this movie versus the other ones um the way that the com the comedy is so is so good here. in this movie yeah sometimes i feel like i'm watching like monty python's meaning of life it's so good you know, that right. kind of like how to do sketch comedy on film. And Karan's gone to people like the Pythons or Roald Dahl or those people who can just do humor in like family friendly horror so well. Right. Well, I guess Python's not family friendly, but you know what I mean. It's yeah, sort of like. Sure. But like the, the, you know, I think of the, the Nosferatu, Tom the Innkeeper, who is just. Oh, I like the fact he's yeah. just Nosferatu. <laughs> but no one really talks about him being Nesferatu. And then he elect- electronically locks his car. Uh-huh. Because the, ma- the maid trying because to... Because the night bus bumps into it. Beep, yeah. Beep. The maid who's constantly trying to clean up the room that won't clean up. And and, and the, just... the monster that roars at her. It reminds me how much the the comedy in the other movies, you'll probably disagree with this, seems to me like it often falls down on the you know on the broader side it's often very badly executed whereas well here... i would certainly agree with the broader side i think there's there but i think that i i would also say i'll agree with you that i think there are hits and misses but i, I think it's that in it's that injection of the absurd into the comedy and being able to do that with an assured directorial hand that makes all the difference mm-hmm um, it makes me totally buy into the, the the comedy, which in other movies I've thought, well, that's that's re- that's a really lame gag, or that doesn't that doesn't even read as comedy, sure. even though it's supposed to be. But here, well, the I, other I, thing too is so deliberate. I think um, the the other thing that he did that was really good was there's more autonomy for the kids as the as as actual students. Hmm. As a director, he said, wear your clothes however you want. Wow. So, 
you know, in the first two movies, it's it's, you know, the tie is up to the neck and, you know, everything looks crisp and it looks clean and, you know, put on your little black hat for the sorting and do this and do that. And, and in this movie, they look disheveled. They look like teenagers. They look, you know. It was such a bold choice to me to, you know, take those staples of the first, well, the, uh, certainly the last movie, probably the first couple of movies. They sound like they work together fairly, yeah, fairly closely, um, like Quidditch and mm-hmm. just kind of mess it up. You know, like yeah. the first time we see Quidditch, it's in the middle of a storm. Storm, right. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, you know, if you but wanted to. But it's fun. Ca- I mean, like. Well, if you want to counterpoint that Chris Columbus, everything is glossy and idyllic looking, like Quidditch yes. by putting Quidditch in a storm is the well. Is lit- the I mean, we spoke in that. the last episode about how, and obviously you wouldn't know, <laughs> being the only person to watch all these movies except the fucking first one. But uh, we talked in the last episode <laughs> about the jump in the look of Quidditch. But to your yeah. point. That was, you know, it was like bright sunshine yeah. kind of day as opposed to, again, like the, the messiness of, of putting it in a storm and, you know, giving the, them their rain jackets and the goggles and, right you know, all that good fun shit. Yeah. I, I mean, and this is, I mean, this is flashing forward to the end of the movie, but I, I it just, it fits with your point so well, was that you like, they end on a moment of optimism where visually it's also very sunny. Right. And yet yeah. it's filmed in a way that is incredibly unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. And that, you know, that is literally about, it's about tone and pacing. It's about how long the camera is sitting on nothing in particular. And you're going, well, what's going to happen? But like, it's, that's all about the blur of his face. It's just all the direct, it's like all the director is literally going, well, yeah, if you were to read this in a script, you'd say this was a happy ending. It doesn't feel like a happy ending. And <laughs> it just, it adds a whole new dimension to, to Well, because you mentioned you that see. there's sunlight, but if, if memory serves, it's like behind a cloud too. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, But I was just, you know, tone, I'm like, well, you know, in terms of the script, this has turned out pretty well. Mm-hmm. And yet... Especially compared to you know how downbeat the endings are from here on in because sure. they're all they're all setting Loss up the of life, next movie. Other, yeah, there's a yeah. you know there's other shit going on, but this feels like the last kind. Well, the of other complete thing, movie, right? The other thing that I think he handled really well is is combining the the effects, yeah, with the practical. Uh, Buckbeak looks great in this movie mm-hmm. in a way in which a lot of things in these movies often don't. Yeah. You know? So I think all of that works. The The Bogart scene where they're practicing on the on the Bogart against their fears and... Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that scene. Yeah. Uh, you know, seeing Alan Rickman in drag. Oh, great. And you get to see, I, I mean, I, I presume you see a lot of it in the first movie, but in, there was none of it in Chamber of Secrets. Like, how can you do a Harry Potter movie and not have Alan Rickman in the classroom? Yeah. We get none of that in the last movie. That right. is a big miss. Big miss. I mean, just how much Alan Rickman can get out of page 394. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and fucking pure magic. Is is this where the I may be wrong, but is this where the hitting Ron on the head running gag starts? No, I think it's the next film. Oh, it's, okay. But because Mike Newell wanted to put a lot of what he described as his experience of sort of British schooling as well, and I, I guess oh. getting slapped on the head with newspapers was part of it. So mm, I'm reluctant to give credit to Mike Newell, but okay. <laughs> of course, of um, course. But I, I just, yeah, it's magnificent. Um, I, th- I like, I also, I like the fact that the, you know, the, the, the legacy cast, as it were, was a sort of pushed to the side a little bit, and they get well, their so, moments. Okay. But, but we have a, we have a brand in a, you know, like a brand new uh, ensemble. Yeah. 
But and I was going to ask you about that because you, you've talked at length about what you really like about these movies are the, the British national treasures. And they are kind of pushed to the side a little bit in this movie, and yet it's your favorite one. So I contend still about yeah. part seven or, se- you know, film seven, part one, that not having them is okay. No, well, yeah, but it, they what what they replace it with is like a shadow cast who are equally amazing, as opposed to okay. just just the just kids. Just the kids. All right, fine. <laughs> and it's uh, yeah, it's, I think everyone who comes in here, David Thewlis, um, who else is uh, Gary Oldman for fuck's sake? Yeah. Uh, 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 what's his name? Peter Pettigrew. See, this is how twisted oh, right. the world is now. I've forgotten the name of Timothy Spall, but right. I remember <laughs> Peter Pettigrew. Look what you've done to me. Happy to uh, oblige. Tim- T- Timothy Spall, and, and then in the middle of the movie, Julie Christie, just there just for boom. a minute. Right. I'm like, I'm like, it's almost like if this, if if the star power of these movies were a person, you'd think they were a real dick. Because they're just like, here's just Julie Christie on a whim. Well, let me ask you this, too, because there's, you know, we're, we're kind of in the part where my only problems with this this movie, like the, oh, good. The, the, the only two problems that I find glaring in this movie. One is actually in that uh, Bogart scene when Professor Lupin steps in front of Harry in the book, it's very clearly described that. A, a small orb appears mm-hmm. because I, I just thought it's really kind of stupid to, to show a moon clearly behind clouds. Like the clouds shouldn't have been there. Make it smaller. It's the mm. moon. But like, that's such a huge giveaway that he's the werewolf. I mean, granted, I guess it doesn't matter if you've read the books, but I mean, who couldn't yeah. figure that out at that point that you're afraid of the moon? Why would you be afraid of the moon? And then the other every, part yeah. is, um, you know, we're talking about the, like, when they go to the three broomsticks and there's that huge exposition dump mm. where the teachers are talking and they kind of clearly, like, they say that uh, Sirius Black had murdered Harry's parents and, right you know, those are my two only quibbles with the movie. but Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't have a problem with either of those. I think... Weirdly, I think they're able to be a bit more on the... I don't find this a particularly, like, mysterious or challenging movie to understand. I actually think... Yeah. That... I mean, you know, we we already said Rick Baker, American Werewolf in London. I actually thought about John Landis and his approach to directing a lot. Mm-hmm during this movie because I thought you've got comedy on one hand you've got yeah. horror you've got the absurd kind of uh, melding them together and you know we think about how American Werewolf in London starts with them arriving on a sheep truck on a sheep truck right and I and I kind of like I'm kind of like yeah well ob- like obviously he's a werewolf but it's like the I don't think the movie's trying to be oblique I actually think it's trying to sort of pin down what everything is in a way that is much more satisfying than doing it with pure spectacle, which is what the previous movie and the following movie will do. Yeah, I guess it just bothers me in the sense that by the end, he's like, when did you figure it out, Hermione? She's like, forever, when Snape said, you know, gave us that essay. And I'm like, yeah, who couldn't figure it out? You know, <laughs> like he's he says you're the right. cleverest witch in your, of your age. And I'm like, no, she's not, because everybody should have known. Anyway, sure. I, I mean, and then, uh, and then, you know, I had the opposite problem later on, where I felt like the plotting was getting too contrived for its own good. Oh, okay. Well, we'll I talk about was... that when we come back. We got to take a break, and when we come back, we'll finish up with Prisoner of Azkaban. If you're anything like me, you spend the majority of the day wondering whether you want coffee, beer, or wine. Whichever way you fall, Brew Bar has you covered. Located in the heart of 3rd Avenue Village in glorious downtown Chula Vista, California, which is also my neck of the woods, 
Brew Bar is a coffee shop, bar, and eatery rolled into one delightful package. Tim and Alex run the place, and let me tell you, listeners, these guys know their coffee. And after you've been in their company, so will you. They turned me on to pour over, and it's literally all I drink now. If for some crazy reason you don't want to try the best coffee in the world, they've got espresso drinks, all kinds of teas, and even coffee cocktails. You heard me. Coffee tails. And we're just getting started. Bottle service on craft beer and wine, alcoholic and caffeinated potions, an all-day food menu with plenty of vegan options. All served up in an atmosphere hip enough to know you're getting the best quality, but not too hip that you feel the need to drive to 7-Eleven and get a bucket of brown swill. Brew Bar. It's the best place to be for beer, wine, coffee and tea. And if you go, you might even see me. And we are back, Tom and I. Of course, we're sitting here talking about The Prisoner of Azkaban, the 2004 film directed by... Again, the genius, Alfonso Cuaron. We both are big fans. Hmm. Um, I mean, we're, you know, we've alluded to the end of this movie, but I got a couple other things I want to ask you about. Yeah. We've got one really big change in this movie, and that's the addition of Michael Gambon. Right. How do you feel about his introduction as uh, Dumbledore? Um, I mean... Mixed, but uh, also, you know, there's nothing anyone, any nothing, anything that anyone can do about it. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, not even the best one, of the best directors in the world could could deal with the fact that we've lost Richard Harris. Richard Harris, right? Uh, Gambon gives a very different portrayal. It's much more overt. Mm-hmm. It's lighter. It's more fun. I like it. It works well in this movie. Would do I wish that Alfonso Cuarón was directing Richard Harris's Dumbledore? Of course. Yeah. Okay. But me too. I have no issues with both the recasting. I really like the fact that he is not doing a Richard Harris impersonation or not even playing the same kind of character because Yeah. I'll I mean he knows as well that he has to do it for fucking god knows how many movies. Um right play Dumbledore so that's a part of it too he might as well put his own stamp on it here um I mean it's you know it's like it's like anything with uh <laughs> you know where I'm going with recasting uh, it's like it's like when you're picking a new Bond or a new Doctor of course Who. we're gonna talk about casting a new James Bond uh it's like you immediately <laughs> you immediately hit the audience with what's different about your take on the character and then you sure. can, and then as it goes on, you can filter in the things that uh, previous actors have done, and that's true here. Um, so I was, I was, uh, I was, I was fine with it. I mean, I remember at the time press reports. It's funny. I felt simultaneously like I'm enjoying that he has a different take, yeah. and I'm enjoying, you know, he has moments that are just fantastic. Grabbing Ron's foot. Uh-huh. Yeah. My favorite of his moments in the movie. He grabs Ron's foot. Um, I I think my favorite moment, I think one of his best moments is when she, you know, Hermione says, we did it, Professor Dumbledore. And he says, did what? <laughs> Good night. That's a great moment. And yet I do still, I upon the first viewing, I can think back and like you said, I think I kind of lamented, oh, I wish Richard Harris was still here though, like to see what, might have been well just for this movie just because i i, I would want to yeah, see what he right. what uh, you know a great film star and a great director can come up with together um yeah but i remember press reporting at the time sort of suggesting that he was doing a richard harris impersonation and i could not disagree oh, I, don't, no. I could not disagree no. more with that but that was the yeah. accepted view that he kind of slot in and, it, and it, basically, that's like superficial film criticism because that's sort of saying he, when he has a big beard, he kind of looks the same. But what he's doing performance-wise is almost entirely the opposite uh, approach to to Harris, which is very, very reserved and grave. And whenever he speaks, it feel, it's a big deal. 
Whereas yeah. Gam- Gambon is far more accessible. I mean, that's just the kind of actor he is, and that's what he's bringing to it. Sure. Uh, and, um, yeah, I, I, so a great, I mean, you know, I think this series, for all its flaws, it knows how to recast. Yeah. Whether that whether that's just filling this this uh this guest spot of the defense of the duck arts teacher, which is vacated in every film. <laughs> um you know, like every time you're like, Where can you go from you know, where can you go from Kenneth Branagh? Oh, David Thewlis. Where can yeah. you go from David Thewlis? Let's forget Brendan Gleeson. <laughs> Amelda <laughs> Staunton. Where can you go from that? You know, and Brendan Gleeson and it's just like um, and it it's it does keep it's amazing me how they keep recasting up. I mean, this isn't a recast up, but it's you know that they they got two actors who are certainly it's at least recasting sideways. It's not it's recasting sideways. Yeah, there's a t-shirt recasting sideways. Yeah, there you go. Um, but so I was, I was but just you know the sense of like because Branner from the past movie is such a big gaping hole in the movie. And they do the thing which I love when sequels do, which is they they find a character, you know, they have a character who comes in and, you know, fills the vacuum, but has a completely different vibe. Yeah. Because Lu- Lupin is interesting in a totally different way. Um, David Th- And David Thewlis is different from Branner in a totally different way. You know, it's the Frank Pentangeli sure. effect. As I've called it, you know, it's like you sat, you know, it's like you miss Clemenza, but whatever this guy's doing in this, you know, in the same right. role in the movie is is just magnificent. And they and they always do that throughout the series. There's never a point where that, you know, it's never like we have Eric Roberts for a movie or something. You know, I don't know why that name popped into my head, but I'm just thinking of like who would be a disappointing substitute. If suddenly the defense of the dark arts teacher was Eric Roberts or something, <laughs> something like that, um, they, that never happens. But in this film in particular, I'm just amazed at at what they get out of the the newer members of the cast uh, who are replacing people who are either dead or just kind of pushed to the background. Yeah, absolutely. Or whatever well, happened, whatever happened to Branner. And so narratively, I mean, we haven't given a lot of time either to the Marauders map. I don't know how much you like or care about all the <laughs> kind of tidbits. I love in that. These movies, I love. I love but... the the Marauders map. It was okay. Good. It was magic and GPS in one. Like it took some. It took something that we knew from modern technology, the GPS, and added uh-huh. magic to it. I like that. I'm yeah, I'm sure that it means more in your kind of you know, in 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 the Harry Potter cult, but that's what it meant to me. <laughs> it was a cute thing that did something cute. <laughs> All right then. But I liked I uh, yeah. I'd, so no what what's the significance of the Marauders rap? Is that just Marauders map? Is that just eluded me? Seems to be a lot of maps in these films. No, I mean, just in the sense of, uh, you know, how at play it is in the rest of the movies and. Oh, is that the same map in the rest of the movies? Yeah. Oh, okay. Missed that bit, did you? I did, yeah. (laughs) Um, But I liked it. I liked it a lot. And didn't it? Oh, that's it. That's what I liked about it is that it fed into the end credits. Yeah, like the style of the end credits is structured like a map, and I think what's kind of funny is like, I mean, I'm someone as you probably noticed who watches the end credits religiously. Yeah, me too. And I got some, you know, absolute zingers of things from credits in these other movie in some of these movies. <laughs> but I watched that and was just like, like they take the map aesthetic into the credits, which is something that like as the David Yates movies go on, he's just sort of like, you can you can almost feel the burden of having to do something interesting for the credits. Yeah. And right. him just yeah. like, oh, fuck, just whatever. I don't yeah. care anymore. What do I do? But what do I do? This is like the peak moment of Absolutely. Like, style content 
everything matches. We take this this idea from the movie and we run with it. Uh, and then to not have a post credit scene, but just audio of Harry, beautifully done. <laughs> Absolutely beautifully done. And, you know, uh, you already mentioned the, the Macbeth song. Yeah, I, I just love that. I'm not in a theater, so I can say Macbeth. There you go. And you want to know the real reason why bad things happen on uh, productions of Macbeth? Go. Because it's a play with swords in it. <laughs> when people have swords, people get hurt. Mystery That's solved. A little bit of Shakespeare corner for you there. There you go. Well, so, so now I have nothing, nothing but good things to say about the Marauders map. But uh, I actually had a note to keep. <laughs> I had, I, I had a note which I failed to follow up on, which was let's keep an eye on this and see if it appears in later movies. <laughs> Clearly, you missed that. <laughs> so I got a sense that it was supposed to be a big deal. Yeah. And uh, so. I mean, you know, for this, the end of the movie, I again, you know, I alluded to it earlier about Harry's arc. Yeah. That's one of the things I love about this movie is the, this idea that he thinks he's going to see his dad. Because he lives in a world of magic, he believes his father is going to save him. Mm-hmm. And the recognition and the moment that comes and the stag that he produces as his Patronus and saving his godfather's life, that whole scene to me is, forgive the pun, pure magic as far as I'm concerned. I just fucking love it. Yeah. And it has emotional weight. Yeah. No, it 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 it, it reads. It's very, it feels very... Uh, for one of a better word, very real, very yeah, emotionally clear what's going on, and that this is this is what I thought about when you know, I we had a cliffhanger about you know I think the plotting might be a bit contrived at times, that kind of die hard with a vengeance double bluff triple bluff, <laughs> right? Um, of like you know is Sirius good? Is he bad? Is he both? Is he bad? No, he's good. <laughs> yeah. I was just, I was sort of like, it was like, that's a lot, you know, that's going. Well, that whole that. scene too. I mean, we we haven't talked about the shrieking shack. That whole scene. I mean, it takes a while to to play out, right? Yeah. Oh and, yeah, yeah. It's like a stage. It's like a stage. Uh, yeah. Version of Harry Potter at that point. Right, and because because you have these moments where, at the very least, Harry believes. Oh my God, has is Lupin betraying me as well? Yeah. You know this and person that, I put my trust in. So. I thought they and were all of that plays really well. Yeah, I thought they were overegging the plot pudding a little bit. But what I liked about that, especially compared to the other movies in this series, is that everything was understandable in human terms. Right. Yeah. Like basic <laughs> human terms. I didn't need to know the name of the thing that eats the other thing to understand what was going on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was just like it was just like here are the dynamics between these people. Here is how everything works out. I know what's happening because, you know, I because Quran knows how to do drama. If he sure. can do the if he can do this with two people in space, he can do this with a bunch of fucking wizards. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but he made this before that. That yeah, I know. I uh, yes, that's true. But I this is all in practice. This is all in service. Harry Potter is in service of some of your favorite movies. So you're welcome. <laughs> that is a that is a good point. However, in my experience, I'm reading in movies made later into this. <laughs> right. And I exactly. think I think you know, and and it, it just confirms my suspicion that he's kind of incapable of making a bad movie no matter what kind of movie he turns his hand to. There are a lot of people that don't like Gravity. R what, the, 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 the movie or the, yeah. or the concept? <laughs> the You're talking about Flat Earthers or... Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I get that. I, I get that, of course. It's like, it's like, it's like, you like dirty space? How about boring space? <laughs> but boring space is my favorite kind of space all right 
anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm but, with you. I love that movie. That that's an it's an extraordinary movie, and only he could do it. Um, but this is this is excellent. This is easily as good as as uh, in its own right as Children of Men. I think Children of Men is a better overall movie, but in terms of like. If you think about what Children of Men is to the book it's adapting, you know what? I'm sure right. it's comparable to what it's, he's doing with J.K. Rowling here. Yeah. Um, but I'd be interested to, you know, I would be interested without reading the book uh, to find out how much. <laughs> Which you of, won't do. How much of this good stuff is some stuff he picked up on from the book and how much of it is like, no, this just works in movies, so let's do it. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, I think where this movie is successful is, you know, it's an adaptation that is efficient, so some things might happen a little differently or out of order or in a different way. But but in service of a movie, in service of a different medium. And I think more than anything, he understands clearly the medium that he is dealing with. And that's why it works. Boy, does he. And just like something that only kind of occurred to me late on in the movie like i mentioned like german expressionism like stylistically is very important in this movie and mm-hmm. uh i realized at some point in the movie that that the transitions from scene from shot to shot or scene to scene uh are recall the cabinet of dr caligari and how scenes start and end in that like oh, okay. really vividly. Like it's like I've seen these I've seen these weird kind of not quite Looney Tune circles. Right. Before. And it was in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So I kind of think this movie's working on a on a very uh, allusive level in a very sophisticated way. That and, and this is what this is why I think it's like this movie, I think, will will last better than when people are tired of talking about Harry Potter. They'll still want to watch this movie because of all those things that you can dig into: the American werewolf in London, the German expressionism, the the roll not roll dullness of it all, the Pythonesque comedy. Yeah. Like we know that is gonna last as something that people like because it already has. I, I intellectually understand and can concede to that point. However, I don't imagine a world in which I will be tired of talking about Harry Potter. You, th- you think there is no time in history, in recorded history, where <laughs> Harry Potter, a story about a boy wizard at school, will, will start to dissipate in the public imagination? No. <laughs> you go drink that Kool-Aid. You get uh, that Actually, go- I you- might be I might be wrong already cuz even right now the Fantastic Beasts that's you know, it's already feeling Yeah, I think a that's a bit more- of a weight, so <laughs> But that's more about uh apathy towards the follow-up of something that people like, I think. Yeah, that's true. It's like ex- you know, it's like extras is is all in every in every possible way as good as the original office but no one will ever accept that to be the truth yeah because they you know they, they it can't it can't recreate the way they feel about about the that original first thing thing yeah. that they associate these people with so i think that's part of the, of the problem there a little bit i also think the militancy of harry potter's fans which you exemplify to a t <laughs> will happily It'll go longer than it should because people will shout down anyone who tries to question uh, even basic mistakes of Harry Potter mythology, as we've talked about in previous episodes. So I think that will artificially extend the phenomenon (laughs) maybe a century or two. What a great place to end it. (laughs) Any other last thoughts before we go? 
no, let's uh, let's dig into. I the feel tr- very generous for giving you that last long-winded, derisive comment. <laughs> it wasn't derisive at all. <laughs> um, that I we've we've talked about this. Harry Potter fans are touchy. They're touchy <laughs> about you mentioning. Your about when uh. when someone comes in with an ill-informed <laughs> comment about a Harry Potter <laughs> book or movie, the hammer will drop you on well you, son. Be, you might as well be slandering their family. Yeah, um, they're not gonna like it. Just to say that you know, we now need to dig into the true horrors of my past. <laughs> All right. Well, a-, a la Harry and Lupin. <laughs> you are looping to my Harry when there it comes you go. To the, when okay. it comes to the Goblet of Fire. Oh, I'm excited to talk about it. So join us next week. Well, not next week. Probably in a few days. Join us in a few hey. days, and we'll drop Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. For now, that's it for the uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. For Tom Stewart from Lonesome Whistle Productions. I am Michael Schantz from the How Dare You Awards. We will see you next time. Say goodbye, Tom. All those, all that doesn't matter because you could just put it all in the time turner. <laughs> done and done.